You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. This is a big episode because it's episode 100, and it also happens to be my last episode of 2021, as I'll be taking a short holiday break. And since we're in the middle of the holiday season, and that's a great time to reflect on the past and think about what the future might bring, I thought this was the perfect episode to include updates on several cases that we've covered over the first 100 episodes on the show. The conversations you'll hear in this episode are all recent ones that I've had with past guests, and they're mostly raw and unedited, so please forgive me if the sound or audio quality isn't perfect. We'll jump into this episode after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderofmyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. In the first segment today, you'll hear from Bill Thomas, whose sister Kathy, along with her girlfriend Rebecca Dowski, was killed in 1986. They were victims in a series of murders dubbed the Colonial Parkway Murders. We covered Kathy and Rebecca's case way back in episode one of this podcast. 
Here's my recent conversation with Bill, updating listeners on what's new in the case. Welcome back, Bill, to the Murder of My Family. Oh, it's great to be here. So are we going with Mike or Morph these days? <laughs> you can call me uh, whatever you like. Just don't call me late to dinner. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. I'll switch back and forth. <laughs> yeah, either either one works. But just in case anyone listening doesn't know, Bill's one of my oldest true crime friends uh, from the, this genre. Um, and he did me the honor of being my first guest way back in episode one of The Murder of My Family discussing his sister, Kathy's case, Kathy, along with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, were two of the murders in a series of murders dubbed the Colonial Parkway murders. And uh, Bill, you've been a tremendous advocate, not just for your sister's case, but for a lot of the other families and victims in that series. So uh, you've done a lot of work and, and uh, it's great to see someone like you advocating for that case. Well, thank you. I, it's amazing to me that we can be talking about um, Mind Over Murder, our podcast, and the murder in my family, and be talking about you know podcast numbers that are you know in double digits and so on, and think back that you know you said I'm starting this new podcast and I'm going to call it Murder in My Family, and I want you to be the first guest. It that feels like it was about five minutes ago. It to it's on one hand it does, and on the other hand it feels sometimes like it's uh, uh, like five <laughs> years ago. Um, Ancient history, <laughs> yeah, and and a lot of times gone by. But when we since since we talked in that first episode, it's fair to say uh, that there is a, a little bit of friction um, that was going on between you and and uh, some of the law enforcement in charge of that case. And and people can listen, I think, a little bit more about that if they want to go back and listen to that episode, um, which, by the way, was, again, episode one, the very first one. People can go back and hear an in-depth conversation with Bill on that. But has any of that, uh, I don't want to call it resentment, any kind of uh, that friction uh, between you and law enforcement improved? I don't think I can say yes to that morph and for what it's worth we just interviewed two of the family members from the phelps family in incident number four in the colonial parkway murders which just launched today and i think they're feeling the same level of unhappiness and frustration that we all are i think some of it's inevitable in a cold case like ours that stretches on in this case now for up to 35 years. We just passed the 35th anniversary of my sister and Rebecca Dowski's death. So there are ups and downs. We have good days and bad days, and we have days where we feel like we're moving forward nicely and other days where we feel like law enforcement is dragging their heels. And that is still where we find ourselves, I think. Yeah, one one thing I when we talked that for that very first episode and you told me a little bit of, about that friction and um, that little bit of a disconnect, uh, I, I didn't know it was going to be as prevalent, but s- since the, since then all the dozens of episodes I've done, I've found it a, a common thing more than I thought it would be of this disconnect between law enforcement and some of the, the victims and their families. Um, 
that there's something missing in the communication between them. Sometimes they get wishy-washy replies. Sometimes they don't get replies at all, which was something that I didn't think I would hear, but that's, that's more common than, than I thought it would be. And it's a little bit of a, a disturbing thing. It is disturbing. And, you know, you and I have gone out and spoken a lot about true crime and met a lot of people electronically and in person. And, you know, I've still managed to get to several true crime events like Crime Con. And I, we just came back from the uh, Savannah Crime Expo. And I meet a lot of families who have lost all ones. And I hear this thread over and over again. And I'm not happy at all to hear that other people are suffering the same frustration that we have in the Colonial Parkway murders. It is helpful sometimes to talk it out. And I think it can be good for families who've lost loved ones and have unsolved cases to understand that this happens to other families and that their frustrations are shared by all of us. But it's actually disappointing from a, an advocate perspective that this is happening over and over again. Yeah, and it, it's unfortunate. I, I don't think there's a, a perfect answer. I think law enforcement in general, you know, as good as they may be at solving crimes or trying to solve crimes, they they might need to take a few more courses on dealing with people, uh, dealing with people that are grieving or looking for answers. Um, you know, they're not maybe as skilled in that as they are at uh finding clues and examining evidence. So that's, that's an unfortunate thing. And hopefully there's a way that can be approved upon. But, um, one well, thing I would add though, I would add though that I would add that I think American law enforcement is under resourced or is spending money in the wrong areas. We need to be spending more money on the 200,000 cold case homicides and probably at least that many untested or uninvestigated rapes and sexual assaults. So I think we actually need to put more resources into solving these cases than we currently are. And I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just saying as a country, it should be a national scandal that there are 200,000 unsolved homicides in the United States. And many experts tell me that many of those murders could be solved if we put time, attention, and resources into those cases. Yeah, and that's that's a message that I've heard you mention time and again. That's um, something that's been an issue uh, and, and getting attention on a lot of these cold cases getting resources on a lot of them uh, is tough in some of these older cases. One thing that you helped work with and, and participate in uh, and get attention for the, the Colonial Parkway series uh, was something that was in the works for quite a while. I know you were excited about it. it was the TV special that finally aired on oxygen called the lovers lane murders. Um, what did you, first off, I guess, what did you think of the title and, and did you feel that was appropriate? Um, do you think it should, do you think it was too vague and generic? Um, and, and then 
the second part of the question I have for you on that is what was it like being involved in that project? Well, as far as the title goes and oxygen knows, I feel that oxygen knows I feel this way. I absolutely hate the title. I think the title is generic and doesn't say enough. We had worked hard, the eight families involved in the Colonial Parkway murders, to, I don't know if brand is exactly the right word, but to try to build some awareness of the fact that there have been these four double homicides in Virginia from 86 to 89. And the media, local media, had branded them the Colonial Parkway murders. So we kind of stuck with that name. And then as Oxygen was putting together the show, they made the decision to call it the Lover's Lane murders. And, you know, I'm working with XG Productions out of Los Angeles and Texas Crew Productions out of Austin, Texas, who were both fantastic to work with, as were the Oxygen people. But I, as a consulting producer, I didn't have any direct contact with Oxygen or on a very limited basis. So word sort of came down from on high that they were changing the name of the show from Colonial Parkway Murders, which at least we felt like tied into what people, particularly in Virginia, know as the Colonial Parkway Murders. And they changed it to this title. And I could never get a decent answer as to why they felt that they were going to give it this really generic title. So um, I still hate the title. Uh, but it is what it is. As far as working on the show goes, it was a very long process. The show started with Jim Clemente, longtime FBI profiler and television producer, the two of us meeting in his living room together with Laura Richards, who does um, the Real Crime Profile podcast with Jim, and talking about the fact that Jim and Laura thought we should do a television series on the Colonial Parkway murders, but it took three years and uh, a complete false start is shooting the entire series and having it put aside and then shooting the television series. I'm not kidding completely from the top a second time before the show saw airtime and it's still available online on the oxygen network. And, uh, through the Oxygen website, look for a four-part series called The Lover's Lane Murders. But boy, the process was an interesting one, but so it took so long. It took three years wow. from the time we first talked about the show for the show to actually hit the air. Yeah, it's amazing what goes into... I have a, a, a new respect in, in working on a little bit of television. The, yeah. the work that goes into putting out, you know, four hours of, of television mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Um, the, the countless weeks, months, and years, just putting that together sometimes like in this case is a, is a good example. Um, despite the, the, the show title, you know, being something that, that may not <laughs> you know call the right attention to the case directly. Um, and, and the grueling schedule did did it result in new tips, new leads, things like that being developed? Any anything in the way of new information? It did actually, and so there's a lot to be thankful for. And I really appreciate what the production teams and Oxygen put into the show. And there's nothing like 
television to reach an extremely wide audience. And even now, we have the show showing up in other territories around the country. It initially aired last February here in the United States. And as I said, it's still available and people watch it and it's new to them. And then we have people from all over the the world. You know, I, we started hearing from people in Europe and Australia and other territories who were then seeing the show. It did result in a number of different tips coming into the FBI. The FBI wasn't 100% happy with the show, but I knew that going in. And even though we used several very prominent retired FBI agents and profilers on the show and as producers on the show, the FBI would prefer that we not put out television series. Although I would argue that shining the media spotlight has been incredibly helpful. And I've even gotten some of the senior people at the FBI to admit that some good came out of running the Lover's Lane murders on oxygen and all of the publicity that surrounded it. And and is any of that uh, information tips, leads coming in, is that being looked into properly? Well, that's the part that's so frustrating for the families. We know tips have come in and many tips have also come through us, often through Kristen Dilley and myself as co-hosts of the Mind Over Murder podcast. We hear from a lot of people and then we try to vet them and then pass their information on to the FBI. And if we can, we always try to get tipsters to agree to speak directly with the Virginia State Police or the FBI as the two lead agencies, because we're not investigators. I know the FBI gets frustrated because they would prefer that everybody go to them directly, but given the lack of follow-up over the three decades, the families are not willing to do that anymore. And I've told the FBI that they I talk to the FBI most because they are the lead agency in my sister, Kathy and Rebecca Dowski's murder. They, they don't like it very much. And I've said, look, I don't care that you don't like it very much. I'm not just going to send somebody to the 800 number at FBI headquarters. I'm going to talk to them first. So I understand what it is they have to say so that I can then follow up with you. But the push-pull behind the scenes can get pretty pointed at times if the families, and particularly me, don't feel that there's appropriate or timely follow-up. Sure. And where does the case stand now today, Where and where does it go from here, do you think? Well, the thing we've been pushing and discussing the most is the use of advanced forensics. And obviously a tip could come in today that might lead them to a new suspect or might provide additional information, which only the investigators are going to truly, truly understand the significance of yeah, the other opportunity. The other opportunity though, is with advanced forensics with, all the new DNA testing and forensic genealogy. And of course the break in the golden state killer case, which is what now three years ago. Yeah. Those opportunities do exist in the colonial parkway murders as well. Well, and that's, what's great. We see cases every week. It seems like now being solved in the news. So 
you know, I'm hopeful, as I'm sure you are, that there's something out there waiting to be discovered, waiting to be developed, um, that even if, if it's not now, this year, maybe next year, maybe a couple years from now, it, it seems like there's always hope um, that something's coming down the road. And we see cases 30, 40, 50 years old getting solved now. So yeah, I hope yeah. that bodes well for, for this case. We hope so too. And we're pushing the FBI and the Virginia state police to go back and take a look at the available evidence. And there's a significant amount and ask them to test or retest evidence using the latest technology and the developments, as you know, like in the last five years, the amount of DNA required to get a working profile and the number of cases, as you mentioned, that have been solved. I mean, we're into the hundreds and hundreds of cases now being solved by forensic genealogy or investigative genetic genealogy. (laughs) Speaking of, let's just call something one thing, not two things (laughs) or three. But that opportunity exists now, and that just wasn't even on the radar even just a few years ago. Yeah, well, that's, and and again, let's fingers crossed. Let's hope that there's something out there in this case that's yet to be discovered and is going to provide some answers. And uh, you know, we after all this time, we still don't know that it was one killer or more than one killer. Uh, but if you can solve even part of it, that might start to unravel the whole case, so that. Uh, Mm -hmm. The rest of the Mm -hmm. answers can be found. Yeah, agreed. And it's funny. I'll give you a short answer. The, I've devoted a tremendous amount of time to this case, as you know, if you ask me today, I believe the colonial parkway murders may be independent events. In other words, even though the idea of a serial killer is still part of the mix, the more I learn, the less, I am convinced that all of these cases are related. Wow. Well, let's hope somehow, some way that you get some kind of answers about at least part of the case. And then maybe that'll help to fill in some of the other uh, answers that are still to be found. Um, Let's switch gears a a little bit if we can and talk about your podcast, Mind Over Murder, that you mentioned. You host it, uh, co-host it with Kristen Dilley. Tell us how that show uh, came about, how you decided to, to do that show. Well, I think you're partly to blame or deserve credit for urging us to get into podcasting. Well, so, I'd like to uh, I'd like to take credit just to tell people that are listening, <laughs> I'd like to take credit for Bill starting the podcast. I remember telling him I think at the very first Crime Con that we went to that you had a great mm-hmm. voice and you should do a podcast. But then I found <laughs> out that that Bill you have a history in media and you've been told by a thousand other people that you should, that you have a great voice. So I can't really take, (laughs) I can't uh, take credit for telling you that because I think you already knew that you had a really cool voice. Oh, well, thanks. The way this came about was that, um, you know, when, as I guested on podcasts with you, with criminology and mind of, uh, I'm about to call it mind of a murder with criminology and the murder of my family and, other podcasts, you had urged me and other podcasters, Lance and Tim from Crawl Space and any number of other podcasters had said, you know, Bill, you're so knowledgeable about this case. It would be great if you would start a podcast. 
And Kristen Dilley, who had worked very closely with me, she's a writer and teacher in Williamsburg, Virginia, near where the Colonial Parkway murders happened. She and I had worked together for a number of years in helping to move the Colonial Parkway murders forward. And she said, oh, I heard the podcast you did with Morph, and it was great. And, and I, you know, I told her off the air, you know, these podcasters are urging me to do a podcast. And she said, you should do one. And I said, I'll tell you what, Kristen, I'll do a podcast if you do a podcast. And even though she didn't aspire to do a podcast, she's done a fantastic job. And what I like about having the two co-hosts is you have a woman's perspective and a man's perspective. We're from different parts of the country. She's younger than I am. She grew up in the area where the Colonial Parkway murders happened. I lived elsewhere. And so we have uh, different points of view and you've got the two voices and two different perspectives. And it's worked out really, really well. And for the first year, we focused on talking to forensics experts and discussing other cases. Then once the television series, Lover's Lane Murders, ran, then we shifted over to covering the Colonial Parkway murders. And now actually, we're about to record an episode and we're going to put kind of a pin in the Colonial Parkway murders for a while and shift back to covering other cases because we've spent a good portion of the last six months or so covering the Colonial Parkway murders pretty intensively. And I think we're going to step away from that now and then move back into sort of a broader true crime discussion. Well, you definitely have a, a good variety on there. The episodes I've listened to, you have some great experts on there, people with different insights. And as you mentioned, uh, the two of you being from different uh, backgrounds, different areas, um, obviously uh, you're hitting different points from different views. Um, so that's one thing that I like it, but it's a nice contrast. Um, and I think some of the conversations you've had have, have been really fascinating. So if anyone hasn't checked out mind over murder, put that on your to do list and, and go over and check that out. Um, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. And both of you do a great job with that. Are you guys going to crime con Vegas, by the way? We are. We will be there, and this will be the first time that we will. This will be the first time we're at a crime con where we'll be uh, podcasters. So we hope to be on Podcast Row, and it's, I think it's going to be very exciting. From what I'm hearing, a lot of people were were and are planning to be there. I think it's going to be a fantastic <laughs> uh, opportunity for the true crime community and for fans all over the country. I think it's going to be the best crime con yet. I think so too. It's, it's, there's a lot of people. I mean, it's Vegas. So, I mean, just that part <laughs> of it, I think is, is it now maybe perhaps that'll be a little bit of a distraction for some people, but um, I, I think I'm with you. I think it's going to be a, a huge amount of people that are going um, podcasters, um, different advocates for cases. It's really a good way for people to, to talk and uh, share ideas and share information. And I'm excited about it. I know you've been to every one. I didn't go to the last one um, in Texas. Uh, I was a little bit bummed out yeah. by that. I know you did, but uh, I hope that you guys uh, do some good work there and, and continue to uh, press on and, and get more exposure for this case and the other cases that you cover on your show. 
Well, thanks. It's one of my stated goals when we solve the Colonial Parkway murders. Note the optimism. My intention is to shift to that larger issue we were talking about, which is 200,000 cold case murders across the United States. So I don't think this conversation needs to end soon. I think we all need to keep pushing forward to try to help families get answers, which I think is the most important thing about the true crime space. Yeah. Well, Bill, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and I appreciate you keeping us up to date on what you're doing and what's going on with the uh, the case. Well, thank you, and keep up the good fight and the incredible work that you're doing as well. Next up, you'll hear from Kelsey German, who's become a wonderful advocate for her sister, Libby German, and Libby's friend, Abby Williams, who were both killed by an unknown murderer in Delphi, Indiana, in February 2017. As many of you well know, the case has taken the true crime world by storm and has made a lot of people angry and confused as to how a case with what seems like so many clues remains unsolved. We first covered Abby and Libby's case in episode 6, and Kelsey's grandparents, Mike and Becky Patty, were my guests. We also did a follow-up bonus episode on the case called Live from CrimeCon, in which I spoke to Kelsey. Now, Kelsey's back to bring us some updates in the case. Here's that conversation. Hi, Kelsey, and welcome to The Murder of My Family. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, we had your grandparents on, Mike and Becky, and then we did a live episode from CrimeCon after that, which you know we got to talk to you and hear from you on your perspective on the case for the first time on the show. And I've, I've said this a few times, I think, on various shows, but I'm just very inspired by and proud of what you've done. I think a lot of people listening... Uh, know the story of, of your sister and Abby who were brutally murdered by some monster in Delphi in February, 2017. Um, you become a fantastic advocate. And I just wanted to say that right up front that I'm very proud of you. And, and I think a lot of people are. Yeah. Thank you. It, it took a lot of work to be able to um, be in the right headspace to advocate the way that I do. Um, but it's definitely been rewarding to meet so many people um who want to help and support us and continue to share the story yeah and i mean you're doing great and continuing to get the word out there i'm always surprised that there are still people out there that don't know about this case or maybe they think it was solved and they just maybe they just don't see it as much as we do obviously you're you're connected to the case so you're you're living it but the rest of us that follow it closely um when when somebody that doesn't know about the case or doesn't know as many details of it, it's it's just kind of surprising. Do you it's still so surprising still? Do you still get a lot of? Do you still hear from people, uh, you know, especially in in Indiana that don't know about the case or don't know that it hasn't been solved yet? All the time. Um, so I'm at Purdue now, and um, I'm still meeting people there when I do these like presentations that I've been doing I went to forensic science club and I think there were six that didn't know but when I did a presentation in the spring I did one for our forensic science class and there were only two people that knew about the case and um, these are people that live within 30 minutes of Delphi Indiana like these aren't people that live forever away um some of them 
had come here from other states or from other countries and they didn't know. And I understood that. Um, but when I asked, they some of them told me I'm from Columbus, Indiana. I'm from Evansville, Indiana. These are people that live within hours of us and they still don't know. Um, so it always just brings up the question, what are we doing? Um, that's, that's not allowing us to reach these people. What, what are they doing to consume their information? Um, maybe it's because they're not um, immersed in the true crime world like we are, but um, it just amazes me that a case this big isn't known by every single person in the world at this point. Yeah. And, and you bring up a good point because people that follow this case, people that are into true crime, they pay attention to this stuff, but the average person out there that's just going about their business that doesn't listen to true crime podcast or watch shows or any of that stuff, they could have information about this case just from somebody they know, someone they're connected to, but since they're not following it closely, they may not uh, even know that they have something that could help the case since they don't know about the case. So it, it does seem like it's worth trying to reach everyone, whether they're into true crime, whether they know about this case or not. Yeah, definitely. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think this sort of forced you to come out into the open. You were a little bit shy and quiet, if, if I'm not mistaken, and this sort of put a spotlight on you to, to go out and advocate for the case. Has it been tough to do that? Have you sort of gotten used to it now and, and talking to people and and so many people seeing you and knowing uh, who you are and what you're doing for the case? Oh, yeah. Um, when I was younger, my grandpa used to make fun of me a little bit, actually, because they would have to order my meals for me at restaurants. I was too shy to even talk to the waiter. Um, and I was too shy to make friends. I wouldn't talk to anybody at school. Like I had like a small group of friends but outside of that. I would like get major anxiety if I tried to talk outside of my friend group or even raise my hand in class to answer a question. Um, and I was pretty much that way forever um up until I turned maybe when I turned 13 or 14 it got a little better but when I was 17 it was still um I still had social anxiety I was still really bad um at starting conversations and public speaking was my worst nightmare um luckily I did take a speech class my sophomore year which helped tremendously and I'm so grateful for that but um this definitely broke me out of that show when I realized that not speaking was not doing any good and um, that somebody needed to be out there pushing the story in a different way than my grandparents could because they couldn't um, they couldn't navigate social media the way that I could and I knew that I could um, so I started advocating a different way and I think that kind of broke us out into a different branch and we were able to advocate to so many more people um yeah so I definitely broke out of my my shell for that one reason and I I think I've gotten a lot better at it for sure yeah I, I definitely think you have and the, the first thing is I can't believe now it's been five years and that this case is it's coming up on five years uh the, the case is unsolved after all this time and uh, you know, for me, it just seems like an eternity. So for you and your family, I imagine this is just un unthinkable. The rest of us don't really know 
what your family goes through? How do you process that and deal with that, that you, you know, ha- don't have an answer, don't have an arrest after all this time? You know, people keep saying that it gets better with time. Um, but personally, I think it's gotten worse for me. Um, I've, I've been able to move on and be happy, but it seems like um, I have to take longer breaks. And um, so I actually haven't been very active doing interviews or on social media because it's, it just affects me so much mentally now that I'm older and I think I can process it a lot better. Um, I think my body's like, wow, this was a really traumatic event and you didn't really cope with it at 17 because you didn't know how to. And now that you're 21, you have a chance to learn about psychology and learn about yourself. And you're at this point where it's kind of starting to break you. So um, I ha- I've been going to therapy a lot and reading um, and a lot more journaling. Um, and hopefully I think that's what my family's been doing. Um, we've all just kind of learned to cope in our own way. Yeah. And uh, again, the rest of us that aren't in the position that your family's in don't know the, the ordeal, the things you have to go through just to, to cope with all of this. Um, what's really sad is I, I was just thinking about this today before we talked that uh, Libby would be what, 18 or 19 now? She would be getting ready to turn 19 in the winter. That's just, it, it's crazy. She'd be herself probably going in, in college right now. Um, so that five years seems like it's just, gone by quick from, from my perspective anyway. Um, and I'm just shocked. I'm, I'm surprised that every month that passes that there's just not news of an arrest. Um, what's going on in the case you, you have, obviously there's things that can't be talked about and, and things that police don't want known, but is there any kind of progress at all? Anything positive that that is going on that can be reported on boy do i wish i had answers for you five years later um i wish we had more things that we could tell publicly um all i can really say is that i know law enforcement's working their absolute hardest um i don't know if we'll get an update for the five-year mark um at least a public update um but i know that they continue to do everything they can and they're going through every single tip. Sometimes they go back over tips a million times if it's sent in a million times. Um, but they'll just keep going over it and they'll keep going through all the information that they're given and continue to use every resource that's given to them. They have access to, um, until we get there. Yeah. I think it's important for people to keep up the pressure and keep spreading what they can, you know, the, the images, the voice, and just sooner or later, hopefully someone recognizes that and comes forward with some information that can help investigators. Um, I think there's a downside in all the attention that it's gotten. Um, the one thing that seems to be prevalent, especially on like social media is people putting up these side by side pictures of, of, X, Y, or Z person that lives in town or whatever. And then they're just basically saying, how about this guy as, as, as the bridge guy? And, and in some cases, even throwing their names out there. Um, do you think that does a disservice to the case? And, and do you think that's, uh, hurts the case at all? 
That definitely hurts the case. So unfortunately, or unfortunately, I guess the guy that we're looking for can't be every single person side by side. Um, so there's thousands of side by sides out there and it can't be every single one of them because we know it's only one person and you're just, you're putting these names out there and then other people hear that name and they read these so-called facts that you're giving and they say, oh, that has to be the guy. And I know there's one specifically that I still get messages about because he was so hyped up in the media that people um, truly believe that it was him. But I believe that if it was him, we would know by now. Um, but because he was so hyped up, people just continue to go off of those facts that they do know um, or the rumors, I guess you could say. Um, and believe them. Um, so I still get people that come up to me that say, oh, the case has been solved. They caught that one guy, but the case hasn't been solved. And so these these side-by-sides and these names that are getting put out there, are just they're making people stop looking um, and congratulate me for a case that's been solved, even though it hasn't been. Yeah. And, and not to mention, too, that the when you're slapping somebody's picture up there and accusing them of being a, a murderer and you know, they live in town, they have to face all their fellow uh, people that live in the community. That doesn't seem fair to them either. A hundred percent. And when this is all over, I have thousands of people that I hope that I'm able to say, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Like your name is getting plastered out there. You had to live with that for so long. And when I know that for a fact that it's not them someday, I I hope that they can um, forgive those people that, that did plaster their name out out there everywhere who did I think mean well in the beginning but maybe shouldn't have posted a name out there without um having a lot a lot to back it up yeah it's a thin line between trying to help and spread the word and and throwing someone's picture out there but at the same time you have to look at is it helping the case or hurting the case and not to mention is it helping or hurting that person that you're throwing up there obviously it's not helping them but um, and, and that's the sad thing with this case is there's just uh, so much stuff that came out early and that's sort of cooled off, uh, as far as what's been released. And I think this, that people just have this natural urge to try and keep digging and, and resorting to, to that. And that's the downside of the case. And hopefully, you know, short of the case being solved, hopefully that happens soon, but Maybe, as you mentioned, there'll be some kind of five-year update and more information will be shared. Yeah. And you and your family have stayed so positive somehow. You know, you use one phrase in particular that I that I always see from, from everyone. Today is the day. Uh, it, it just seems like I'm picturing that you all just wake up and feel that it's true that today is the day that you're going to find out who did this, you're going to get answers and and you're keeping focused with that phrase. Uh, How do you all stay so positive and and use that phrase today's the day? How does that, you know, motivate you and and keep you going? You know, I wish it were true that we did wake up every morning happy and hopeful knowing that one day it's going to be the day. But the truth is there are a lot of days where we aren't so positive and we're not so hopeful. But on those days, we're able to look at all of the good things that have come. Um, and most days we are able to say today is the day. 
that we're going to get answers and the police are going to call us and say, hey, it's over. Um, and we're just able to imagine um, how great that feeling is going to be um, when we can finally close one book of the chapter. Unfortunately, we'll have to start a new book in the chapter and have to deal with a lot of other painful things. But um, it's hard. It's hard to stay hopeful after five years. I think without answers, it would be incredibly easy for me to lay down and say, this is this is it. I'm tired of advocating. I'm tired of fighting for something that we're never going to get answers for. Um, but I think what keeps us fighting really is knowing that Abby and Libby both deserve justice and our families deserve justice and we deserve answers. And so many other people deserve answers. Um, so we want to be an inspiration. We want to be a light um, for other people who are fighting to see that a family can keep fighting um, after five years even though it's hard, even though there's days where we're not hopeful, um, the, the police are there to back us up. We have tons of supporters. We have tons and tons of people around the world supporting us and helping us fight. Um, and all of those people just keep us going. Um, and like my grandpa says, when he wakes up in the morning, um, he walks out to let the dogs out and um, looks at Libby's picture and just remembers that that's, that's who we're fighting for and we have to keep going. Well, well, you guys are, are definitely doing a great job. She's got a great team of people that are trying to help keep her memory out there, keep the case in the forefront. So congratulations on doing such a great job. She'd be proud of all of you. Um, I and, and one thing, too, just uh, I wanted to touch on. This has, as ugly as this was and as terrible as the situation is, it's sort of helped you think about some different career goals. Tell us a little bit about what you, uh, some of the courses you're taking in college and what you were hoping to do with them. Yeah. So I'm at Purdue university. Um, currently I'm actually a senior, so I'll be graduating in the spring. Um, and I've been studying forensic science and psychology, um, as well as like a, it's called law and society, which is basically like a criminology course. Um, which hopefully will lead me into victim's advocacy so that I can advocate for other family members um, and probably start clinical psychology um, to work as a trauma therapist to bring um, the resources that people like me need. Um, because when I, when I got into this and I started advocating, I didn't realize that there were so many options, so many resources for me. Um, and that I needed help um, getting through it. And so it'll be nice to be able to give back to a community that has helped me so much. Well, that's wonderful. And I'm sure if, if you're anything as great an advocate as you are for this case, you'll you'll help a lot of uh, families and, and people out there that are going to be needing help. Um, well, I, I am hoping and praying that one day soon the Today is the day, and your family's going to get the news and find out who did this, and um, we can get some answers, and the, someone that did something so evil is brought to justice, and I'm hoping for your family uh, that you get that peace at some point. Yeah, thank you. I hope so, too. Hopefully sooner rather than later. In this segment, you'll hear from Jennifer McPhee, the daughter of Julianne Stallman, whose case we covered back in Episode 20. 
Julianne was stabbed to death inside her Butte, Montana home in November 1994, and her case went cold. But there's been a lot of movement in her case since we first talked with Jennifer. Here's the conversation with her. Hi, Jen, and welcome back to the Murder of My Family. Hi, Mike. I'm super excited to do this with you. Uh, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, your mom, Julianne Stallman's case, was one that we talked about in episode 20. And I think back when we did that episode, when we talked, it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed like at the time you were worried that it was going to stay cold and there wasn't going to be anything new with it. Uh, is that correct in my assumption there? Yeah, yeah. That I think we did that just over two years ago, and it was pretty stagnant at the time. And I think I'm just always worried that it's going to stay cold. So I was so thankful that to be on your podcast and to put it back out there. And um, you know, we had some, we had a little bit of movement over the last two years. And that's that's good. That's something that I definitely want to talk about. And it, just going back for for people that haven't listened to episode twenty, I, I think we can say that it was uh, fair to say to conclude that you maybe feel there were some uh, misgivings that, about the investigation itself. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it just seems like there was a lot of um, nothing happening most of the time, for sure. Did Did you feel there was any kind of uh, disconnect between you and, and the police and, and what they were doing and what maybe you thought they should be doing? Oh, absolutely. Yes. There's, there's just been so much, um, advancement in the DNA. Um, and I, I just always had wanted them to kind of push to, to get some of the evidence that they still had to get it tested because a lot of the evidence at the time hadn't even been tested, let alone, you know, have the opportunity to retest something. So I had um, pushed for many, many years to be able to to at least get some of the stuff tested so we could see what there was, if there was anything new, if there was a sample that could be used and if it matched anybody. Yeah. And I think a lot of these older cases, they'll sit on a shelf someplace and not really be checked out, you know, through time and, and at different intervals, maybe go back and say, Hey, what can we do different? And is there some new technology now that, wasn't around five years ago when we last looked at this case, um, especially when it comes to stuff like DNA. Obviously, uh, there's so many advancements in that that every couple of years it seems to the the technology seems to really advance and new things can be done that weren't available even a couple of years ago. So, I think it's worth it in these kind of cases to to go back and revisit some of that stuff. Oh, absolutely, I, and you. You know, we see cases being solved 30 years, 48 years later because of the advancement in the DNA. And it's a, it's very complicated to get things retested and to, to like, say, put things into genealogy. And it's, it's not like when you see these cases get solved, it's not like they just did it yesterday. They've clearly been working on it for months and months to, to get it where it is. And so I... I think sometimes people have a, a huge misunderstanding on how exactly that works and how hard it is to, to get it done. Um, you know, people suggest to me all the time, why don't you get to genealogy? Well, we're not at that point just yet. You know, it's, 
I understand you just saw the newspaper article about a case just being solved with it, but it wasn't like they just asked for it yesterday. So that sometimes is hard to explain to people who don't clearly understand how how this works and how um, slow the wheels of justice have become along for me anyways. Yeah. For sure. Every case is a little bit different. There's a, you know, different, you know, might not be as good a DNA sample or as, not as much DNA as needed or even I think some people don't understand, even when these cases are solved and they find out who the person is that committed a crime, they still, that just because the DNA tells them that they still go back and do a full investigation of that person, uh, and that can take a lot of time as well. So it, oh, definitely, definitely patience is needed in these cases when you're working through all this stuff and trying to connect all the dots. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And and you were vocal. You didn't want your mom's case to just go cold and be forgotten about. But then you uh, had sort of a public spotlight uh, put on the case uh, when your mom's case was featured on an episode of Paul Hull's show, DNA Murder. Um, first off, how did it feel like for you personally when things went from like zero to 60 when you've now – you're worried that your mom's case isn't going to get exposure at all to hear it is being featured on this brand new TV show. It, um, I mean, that was an absolute blessing. It, um, it, it came at a time where I really, really needed something to, to go forward just to keep me going forward. And it also came at a time where I was really having a hard time, um, with my own personal health. I had, um, just had brain surgery in March of 2019 and I think I was a week, exactly a week out of the hospital and home when um, we got the call that indeed Paul Holes was going to take on the case. So, it, and once that call came in, um, things started moving really, really fast. And they told me that things would move really, really fast, but they moved fast. You know, I had to be in Montana in June of 2019. And then, um, you know, the show aired in November of 2019. So things moved really quickly and it was exciting and it was heartbreaking and it was, uh, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And then, um, you know, but the experience all around was, was worth everything just to get that attention back on the case and to have somebody from the complete outside see a hundred percent of everything that the Butte Silver Bowl Police Department had. And up until that point, that hadn't really ever happened. Was and, it not to cut you off? But was that no, a uh, um, was that a positive to see that the they were willing to have someone like Paul Holtz come in and look at it with a new set of eyes for you? Uh, yes, absolutely. And when when the opportunity first came about that this was a possibility, I I. I, got, I don't want to say I wasn't 100% worried that they wouldn't allow it. I was a little bit nervous that they wouldn't allow it. But I thought, what do they have to lose? And, you know, I had talked with the sheriff. And, no, I, you know, I didn't talk to the sheriff at first. He called me one night, and it was, it was late. It was maybe like February, and it was late in the evening. And my phone rang, and I saw the sheriff's name come across my phone. And immediately my heart just started pounding because I'm like, what is he doing calling me this late? You know, I, I was excited because, and scared because something has happened. Well, he had received a, an email or a call. I think maybe it was a phone call 
from the producer of the show explaining what they wanted to do and if they would be um, willing to help. And the sheriff just wanted to know, you know, make sure that I was 100% on board with that. And of course I was, you know, absolutely, let's go. And so then that's when things really started rolling on the backside of everything. You know, they had to, to get everything to Paul so he could go over it and read it and, and see if the case, you know, had a possibility of being solved because I, I think they weren't going to try to, to work on a show that there was nothing there. And so then that, you know, took a few months for them to go over all that. And then, you know, then I got to call in May. So wow. I, I was excited. I was, I was hopeful and excited. And I knew that, well, I felt that this was our, our last good chance to, to get things moving because I knew that they would, um, they would be able to test some of the stuff that hadn't been tested. And that, that's exactly what they did. Well, that's really refreshing to have, uh, you know, police force that's open to this opportunity because I think a lot of these places have pride and they, if they don't want to look bad, someone else has to come in and do their work for them or, or sort of override what they've found. So I think that shows something on their part that they were willing to have someone come in and, and, see if there was anything that could be added that maybe they hadn't thought of. Absolutely. Yes. I was, I was very grateful that they had, had allowed that to happen and participated. You know, they did um, everything and anything that Paul had suggested up until, you know, now. Oh, that's, that's good. And were there any kind of new uh, leads or anything developed as a result of that show? Maybe tips that came in that, that might help eventually, um, solve this case? Well, we did have, when the evidence had been sent to a crime lab and was tested, uh, and some of that evidence had been tested for the very first time, they did come up with a uh, the same profile, the same unknown male profile that they had found previously on a rug and a towel. They found that on her pants on the cuff of her pants and then on her shoe. So now we can probably say pretty certain that that unknown male DNA profile was there at least at the time the crime was committed. And then um, they found another unknown male DNA profile underneath one of her fingernail clippings. And up until that very point, not, the clothes and those fingernail clippings had never been tested for DNA. Wow. So so, so now we have big. two unknown. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. As I said, that's pretty big. Just just getting that information uh, developed when, when that hadn't been done before. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, the, you know, finding that same unknown male DNA profile that they had previously, you know, actually on her person. Um, was big because I was for a really long time uncertain that the the profile that was found on the carpet and um, at the towel maybe maybe wasn't connected because it wasn't you know directly on her. So again, those samples were of a mixed source. So at this moment, those samples cannot be um, used to enter that unknown male DNA profile into a genealogy. Um, database or site so that was a little bit disheartening i really was excited that hopefully that would be able to happen um but it can't it can't be so the in order for the 
profile to be entered into genealogy, it has to be a single source profile. And so far, we don't have that. Well, and technology is always moving along. Maybe at some point there's a, a method or a way that they can uh, separate those two mm-hmm. profiles and then, you know, go forward and, and, and maybe do that one day down the road. Yes, yes. There's, there's been great things um, with that. And we have had, had contact with um, Paul um through a third party, um, my one of my cousins uh, contacted him a few weeks ago um, to see it. We had read something and we had kind of researched it, and there, it, it is possible. It is possible. So um, he said he would contact the Butte Silverville Police Department and advise them on what he what his idea and plan would be for that. And so he did that. He contacted the Butte Silverville Police Department a few weeks ago. I've been in contact with uh, Detective Anthony Jurenic, who is still on the case. I think he was on the case last time we talked. And they were going to be working with the state crime lab and the sheriff to um, do whatever Paul had suggested, which I would assume would be to get that uh, some of that evidence back down to the crime lab and uh, try to see if we can't do that. So that that is good. That is um, good news. I think I just need Butte to kind of move along with it. So far, they haven't done anything since I talked to him a couple weeks ago. So, uh, again, this ball moves really slow. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I know you've been patient or maybe not patient. You haven't had any choice but yeah. to sit back in all this time. But hopefully this is just a sign that things are moving along and the case is progressing in some small way. Um, and that maybe another couple of years down the road or even sooner, maybe you'll have some answers and um, find out who did this to your mom. Uh, where does the case stand now? What are you sort of in a waiting holding pattern or is it, are they still looking at new suspects, new th- tips that might come in? Well, I, after the show aired, um, we did get some tips. We had we got a couple names that we hadn't ever had before, and those individuals have been ruled out as not a match for the DNA that was found at the scene. Um, but again, getting it out there, getting people thinking about it, talking about it, you know you know, sitting in a salon chair, re-talking about it and coming up with something that hadn't been known, that was very good. Um, even though they didn't pan out, at least people were, you know, it was kind of the hum of the town for a little bit. Um, so as of now, I haven't heard of, there hasn't been anything um, since I, you know, since before I talked to him. I, I think I, I really kind of, after the show aired, I really kind of took a break and I kind of stepped back for probably a good year and a half um, I uh, I was really kind of shattered and broken and kind of felt beat down after the show aired. So I just kind of stepped back and I've, this is probably the first time I've ever really been this far back um, since it happened. So I, as far as I know, I'm unaware of any other leads that came in initially after the case, uh, you know, the show aired. So but I'm back. I'm ready to go. Uh, and it's, uh, it's kind of taken me a little bit to, um, 
to kind of want to get going again. So yeah, we'll, think, we'll see what happens. I, I think people too probably don't realize the, the weight and the heaviness that goes along with going down that path of digging up all these old memories and, and sort of reliving all this and, and trying to do all the stuff for TV. It probably took a lot out of you and uh, caused you to step back a little bit. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and I, I think it's just so, this, there's just so many words I don't even know how to use, but it's, it's draining. And I, once I get going and I get focused, it's all consuming. And so, you know, after the show aired, I, I really just needed a break and I needed to just step back and kind of figure out if I wanted to continue or not because it um, mentally, physically, emotional, just utterly exhausting. And, you know, when the show aired, I mean, I have seen crime scene photos. I, I have seen crime scene photos myself. So, but to sit there and watch the show with my children who had never seen that or been exposed to it um, was, was really awful and traumatic traumatic for them and traumatic for me to see them have to see that. Um, so it, it's really, it was really tough. And so I, I needed that break and, you know, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay to get going on it. I know when I need to step back and, and when I need to focus on other things, I, I think it's finally taken me a long time to learn that I can care for my family and my grandchildren and, and I don't need to be, you know, up in these files all the time when I'm got nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's perfectly understandable to take, take that a uh, little bit of a break and, and step back periodically. But uh, and hopefully that the road isn't too long and you're going to get some answers and, and find out who did this sooner rather than later. Uh, just to recap, is there any kind of, um, do you have any kind of, uh, websites or social media or anything where people can share any information or tips or whatever they might have or learn more about your mom's case? Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, haven't posted much in the last couple of years on her page, but I do have a Facebook page, um, justice for Julianne Stallman. Um, and I, there, I also have another one that's, um, Julianne Stallman, uh, victim of homicide. I, you know, I don't even know the name of it. But she can be searched on Facebook. Um, and again, I haven't posted much, but I guess sometimes there's not a lot to post, you know, but there's pictures of her and, and stuff like that. And people do comment on there and stuff. Or if I put something up, people will, hey, have you checked this out? And, you know, I periodically get Facebook messages from people that do see her site, um, you know, praying and hoping and things like that. And then, you know, giving suggestions or, or, or tips, you know, I've gotten plenty of tips from Facebook and, um, but you know, that's, that's just where it's at. I don't have any other sites, but, well, um, you know, you can always call the Riverboat police department with any information or, you know, any suggestions. It, it's, I think it's sometimes nice for the police department to know that I'm not the only one knocking on their doors, looking for answers. Um, you know, and, and after this amount of time, maybe the person that committed the crime is no longer alive, but I still, uh, I still really wish that I could know the answer to the question of the who did it, you know? Yeah. And maybe so much time has passed by that 
you know, if someone was hiding something or afraid to say something, maybe with the passage of time that will dissipate and they'll come forward with information. And even if the person that did this isn't around anymore, just, you know, getting the answer of who uh, might help you in in some way to understand what happened. Right, right, exactly. Yep, relationships change, people change. That's always been a, a hope and a possibility for sure. Well, I'm going to keep on looking, hoping to see a headline that the case is solved, and, and I'd love to do another follow-up with you one day, Jen, if that is the case, uh, and, and hopefully you get some kind of answers and and can find some kind of peace and uh, figure out who did this and, and maybe why. Yes, absolutely, 100%. I'm looking forward to that day <laughs> so much. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jen, for coming on and updating us and, and again, wishing you uh, luck. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're healthy, too, uh, after what you've been through and, and that you're setting yes. time aside for yourself and, and stepping back uh, from this when you need to. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I'm so excited for your 100th episode, and um, I appreciate you having me back on. Uh, thank you so much. Things are moving so fast in Julianne Stallman's case that in the time since I spoke to her daughter, Jennifer, news has come out that male DNA found at the crime scene is in the process of being tested, and hopefully forensic genealogy will one day soon lead to Julianne's killer. This is a case that we'll have to watch closely, and I'd love to have Jennifer on in my next update episode, telling us all about how the case was solved. Let's keep our fingers crossed that that's the case. The following update includes a conversation with Michelle Mims, whose sister Melissa Platt was apparently beaten to death and left to die a slow and painful death in October 2008. We covered Melissa's case in episode 71. Despite the clear evidence that she died at the hands of someone close to her, outrageously, there's been no resolution in her case, but hopefully that will be changing soon. Here's my conversation with Michelle. Hi, Michelle, and thanks for coming back on The Murder of My Family to discuss your sister Melissa's case with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to bring you back here because I think since we last talked in episode 71 of the show, there's been some kind of progress or or at least some kind of news in your sister's case. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I can. And, And actually, I mean, you know, the private investigation has been going on for many, many months now, and I'm able to finally speak publicly on on the findings. And um, a a massive, I mean, actually a monumental thing that's happened in the case is my private investigation team met with a woman by the name of Karen Kelly, and uh, she is a over like forensic pathologist, many in the state of North Carolina. They presented their you know, the case to her. And um, she had the power to actually change the death certificate. So after going over everything, she wholeheartedly agreed that my sister uh, lost her life due to assault. And um, she went ahead and processed all the paperwork and she got the death certificate, death certificate, I'm sorry, changed from undetermined to homicide due to assault and closed head injury, which is very huge. And my understanding is um, it's not very common for a death certificate to be changed like that. Um, on top of that, she she was you know, so passionate about this case. She took it upon herself to meet with 30 
like forensic pathologists, medical examiners, medical examiner supervisors across the state of North Carolina and presented everything. And every single one of them agreed that this was a homicide. And um, so that, that's that been huge. And, and each of these people would be willing to testify in court as to such. Um, wow. so, so, yeah, that I, I, I can't even express in words how... Like it was bittersweet. It was just shocking. I was so shocked and and just amazed and for what all these people went through, you know, for her, and um and and took it and the fact that she took it upon herself to meet with all these people was absolutely huge to me. So all of the information from the private investigation case has been turned over to. Uh, Chief Deputy Ryan Dawson with the Lenore County Sheriff's Office in Lenore County, North Carolina, and then also the District Attorney Matt Delbridge. Um, now, uh, Ryan Dawson has stated to my mother actually that you know he is going to take it upon himself to go through all of the binders given to him by the PA. And um, he's going to work on top of his normal duties. He's going to work on the case himself. So, um, so we're, he said it may, you know, take some time. You may have to re-interview some people, but the case has now officially been reopened, wow, which is also huge. It was over a decade, and it's officially reopened now. Yeah, that's <laughs> big news. And I, I think for anyone that somehow didn't listen to episode seventy-one about your sister's case, they should go back and, and listen because it, it it was just uh, clearly something they said that it was originally an accidental fall in a, in a bathtub but it seemed right. like it was clearly so much more than that uh, and and just so to recap more. what led them to to that first belief uh, early on oh uh, that that she fell yeah was that strictly based on what was told to them or did they come to that conclusion on their own i know that was strictly based upon what her boyfriend at the time told them happened and they just took it at face value and that was it there was really not no investigation done really you know they interviewed him they interviewed his sons who both of his sons uh stated that they witnessed him uh violently beating both if both this is like two of his ex-wives like both of them um, you know, he would violently beat, threaten with guns and all kinds of things. He has a history of domestic violence. So, you know, they, they go to interview a couple of people and then called it a day and closed it out pretty quick. It just it really went into an active status very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then nothing else was ever done. So, yeah, huge, huge movement in the case now. Um, the the district attorney has, has not responded to any calls. Uh, by me, my mom, other people. Um, Ryan Dawson was the only one who returned a call to my to my mom so far, um, but that's about all we've heard from them. So uh, we're we're just kind of playing the waiting game now to see what they say. And and you know, of course, I do understand the the chief deputy. He's going to go through everything and then turn his findings over to the DA. And I'm, I'm very aware that it's not up to the chief deputy to actually decide whether to bring charges. The one thing he did, Ryan Dawson did tell my mom that, you know, kind of bothered me is he said, you know, just because the death certificate has been changed doesn't automatically mean that charges will be brought. 
and kind of, you know, left it at that. <laughs> so I don't know exactly where this is going. I, there's so overwhelming evidence. There's all these very high, well-respected people within the state of North Carolina in the medical examination field, pathologists, forensic pathologists, that is, that are willing to come to bat. And another huge thing that happened is I was contacted by, um, you know, her boyfriend at the time that no is responsible for this. I guess I have to say allegedly for legal purposes, but um, she reached out to me and I've found that his own family is backing my family on this and are willing to do whatever they need to do to help, which I think speaks volumes. They reached out to me um, and his, his niece, niece specifically reached out to me and, you know, just expressed her condolences. And she said that her family or his family is on the side of my family and they will back us up and they will do whatever they need to do to help us, which I think speaks volumes. You know, um, it, they've told me about things they've seen over the years, just horrific things that this man has done to the point that they've disowned him. And um, I, I, I was truly touched by that. I didn't know what to expect when she asked me to call her. Um, but yeah, that's what that ended up being. So I've, I've also got the support of his own family backing my family on this. So, so that's another thing that happened. Um, there's been, you know, there's a lot of details um, that I'm going to end up going over um, in, in January on a, on a video that I'll be doing uh, that'll be on YouTube that goes into even more details of updates and things that were found during the investigation that are actually quite appalling. Um, yeah. So there's, there, cause there's a lot to go over that's wow. been found over the many months they've investigating this. Yeah. Lot, lot, lots of stuff to go over. That's pretty powerful when the, the person that probably knows more or, or may have something to do with the crime, uh, when his family supports the victim's family instead of him, that's, that's pretty telling, uh, that, and the history of, uh, you know, alleged abuse that's uh, shows a pattern. So that's pretty troubling. Yeah, definitely. And, um, I, I did have a reporter from the New Bern Sun journal reach out to me and, um, she actually released an article, uh, where it shows how the case has officially been reopened, and then there's some there's some details there as well. She she did get a response from Chief Deputy Ryan Dawson, and he he did say that you know they have received new leads and new information, um, but they cannot comment on an ongoing investigation. Um, so uh, Ryan uh, De- Matt Delbridge, I'm sorry, the district attorney has not. Re- responded to them for any kind of a comment, but they did at least get that comment from the, the chief deputy. So that's another thing that's happened um, and been released recently. Well, this is definitely a step in the right direction at least. Um, and yes. hopefully they'll take all these experts, uh, you know, advice and their, the, the, even the fact that his family is supporting you, that should all play some kind of role in, in the strength of, you know, what there is here and, and, and maybe charges can be brought if all that's considered and um, they dig into it a little bit as opposed to just, you know, doing the easy thing and saying, let's just leave this where it is. Right. Exactly. And so we're just, we've, we've always, 
you know, just um, hope the person responsible here can at least be brought to trial, you know, and, and we can finally get justice. I, I know um, last year I, after hitting wall after wall, after wall, year after year with uh, the DA's office, sheriff's office, I said, you know what, I've got to try a different approach. And I mean, it, it is, not the easiest thing, you know, to relive those details over and over, but I'll, I'll keep doing it as long as I, it takes to to get justice for her. Uh, and you had mentioned, too, you're going to be putting out a video. Where can people uh, view that? And are there any other social media things or uh, pages uh, for your sister's case? Yeah, okay. So um, I will be on the Mile Higher podcast. Um, I'm going to be flying out to Colorado January 14th. That is a podcast that is hosted by Kendall Ray. Uh, Kendall Ray is one of the true crime YouTubers that did a video on my sister's case. Um, So she'll be flying me out there to um, go over all the updates. Uh, so, so that's that's one thing that's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, so that that can be found on just the Mile Higher Podcast YouTube channel. And then um, I I do have a couple of things. I have a Twitter account. It's Justice for M Platt P L A T T, and um, I provide you know any updates there. And then I have a a you know Facebook page Justice for Melissa Platt. We post updates there as well. So, yeah. Those places um, people can look if they want to see anything. Yeah. Hopefully some of the updates you'll be putting out there on some of these new things is that there's an arrest that's happened and you can take that next step that you've been waiting for and uh, seeing someone held accountable for this after all this time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I, I hope so. And, and I'm going to be positive here and say it's going to happen. It might take a little while, but I, I just feel I feel in my heart it's going to happen finally. Well, we're hoping for you, and and I'd love to do another follow up. You know, when there is an arrest, and and that uh, you'll get some kind of uh, justice out of this. Yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you com- for coming on again and updating us about Melissa's case, and and again, keep up the good fight. It seems like you're making progress. Yeah, absolutely. And again, thank you for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Appreciate you giving my family a voice. In our final case update, you'll hear from Ann Coldridge, updating us on what's new in one of the oldest cases I've ever covered. Ann's great-aunt Miriam was killed in 1948 in what appears to be a hate crime because she was gay. For almost three quarters of a century, her killer's gone unidentified. But that hasn't stopped Ann and her determination to find out the truth about what happened to Miriam. Here's my conversation with Ann. Well, again, I just want to just sort of recap a little bit about where mm-hmm. you've gone as far as since we were on episode 35. So, geez, that's like 60-something episodes ago already. So that's... I can't quite, believe quite, it. It doesn't yeah. seem like it, yeah. But just mainly where, you know, things have developed, what things maybe you're still looking for, how the documentary was coming along, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, honestly, I think, being on the podcast kind of really catapulted a lot of the things that happened afterwards. So like first I just have to say like a shout out to Danita Clark. So Danita was a listener who put me in touch um, with a man by the name of Joseph Scott Morgan, who um, was a coroner, had a coroner's background, but now teaches forensic studies in Alabama. 
he was able to sort of put Miriam's autopsy in layman's terms for me. So um, one of the things that he did say was, you know, Miriam was really beaten. Like, you know, this wasn't just, you know, sort of this, she got into this fight. It was like, it was, it was pretty um, intense beating. And ultimately she did die from sort of all the head trauma that occurred. Uh, So that, that, you know, corroborated some of the story that had been told in my family um, to to where I knew when I started. And, And then the other big break I had was, the I got a hold of um, grand jury testimony from the New York City archives. I, I don't even know. I, I honestly, I think it was just luck that I got a hold of it. But it reads like a script. And at the time I started, at the time I still go back and listen to your podcast because I have to remind myself of where I was at that point in time to where I am now. And at that, at the time, I was talking to you, I only knew of one woman that was with my aunt. And it turns out she was with four women that night, Uh, four women all, um, you know, described as, you know, being lesbian. And that was why they were being harassed in this bar. Um, It sort of sounded like there was a little bit of an altercation earlier in the evening. Um, And then later um, that night, or I should say in the early morning hours of the following day, uh, this fight broke out. Um, I have since managed to track down the families of three of two of the three women that were with my aunt um, and have made contact um, and spoken to them and learned a little from their families, you know, learned about their lives and sort of what happened to them sort of after this point in time. Um, so it's, it's been a really amazing journey. Wow. Um, so I guess shout out to, to the listeners of the podcast that reached out and, uh, helped you sort of, uh, get a little bit further along in your process. I think that speaks to the, uh, the value of, of podcasts when you've got a lot of people out there listening and you connect with them, they, they come forward and, you know, either themselves, they can offer things that they can do to help people or connect you with someone that kind of sounds like that's what happened uh, in your case. Um, As far as this expert that was able to give you the analysis Mm. uh, on um, the severity of her trauma, um, was there anything that you didn't know? You, You knew sort of the details about what happened, but was it really the severity of, of the injuries that, that they were able to enlighten you on and and make you understand just how bad it was? Um, I think a little bit of both. So at the time I spoke to Joseph Scott Morgan, he, I did not have the grand jury testimony. So we were literally just going, you know, and that is sort of the job of the coroner anyway, just to just, you know, what does the science say? What does the evidence say? None of the, none of the, you know, facts and circumstances of what happened that evening. Um, so, you know, I think we knew from, I had a, I had a small police report that she was in a fight, um, and, and it was like, she got into the street altercation where she hit her head on a curb, um, which really, you know, sort of 
is what was the death blow, I guess you, you would say. But when, um, you know, he talked about the bruising on her faces, on both sides of her faces, it was, I think it was clear she was, you know, somebody was punching her. Um, she had bruises on her legs, uh, you know, you know, we, we theorize, you know, was she kicked or, you know, what were, was she fighting back, but her hands had no indication of like defense wounds. So I think it was just that, you know, these powerful men, they were, I'm going to guess they were drunk based on what we know happened that evening. Um, just, you know, they, they, they beat these women because um, the girls were, were actually trying to stick together and stick up for themselves, as we learned, um, as I later learned in the grand jury testimony. Wow. And you mentioned being able to locate uh, some of these women's families and, and mm-hmm. sort of uh, touch base with them. And you're still looking for, for the other ones, I assume. But were you able to find out had uh any of those uh, women uh, that were with Miriam, have they shared or relayed any of the information from what they witnessed to any of their family members that they were able to pass along to you? So unfortunately not. Um, There's one family that I've spoke more in depth to um, than the other, um, you know, to say it's sort of, you know, when you, you track people down because the internet and, and genealogy websites are amazing tools, (laughs) you call people and you think they're going to think I am like crazy or that this is some kind of scam. Um, so I kind of treaded lightly, but I I don't want to give it up because we're working on a documentary, but there's this really weird connection that happened through Joseph Scott Morgan. Um, that I, I honestly, it's like the, a plot twist no one saw coming, but it gave me the ability to have more credibility when I approached um, this one family. So I spoke to nephews and nieces, and I've just made contact um, with uh, the woman's biological son. I, I can tell you that two of the three women um, did get married, as women did back then, um, and had families of their own. Um, and then, well, one of them um, later lived her life as a gay woman. Her family, even her own son, said we we assume that um, because she lived with a woman the rest of her life after after the father died. But the other family that I I have had the most contact with, um, I really don't know. And it was eye opening for me because I just made the assumption because you know they keep using the term alleged lesbians throughout the the, the grand jury testimony, but. I don't really know. We don't really know about this one woman. She could have just been their friend. And so like, it was just that perspective of, I made this assumption that all of them together, but at the end of the day, what does it even matter? It, it, you know, it, it shouldn't have mattered what happened to them shouldn't have happened. Um, but I can say that the two women at families that I have made contact with did remain friends after the late 1940s and one, the son that I have yet to to sit down and talk more detail with um, remembers visiting the friend. So I get to kind of tease that out. And the other woman, uh, well, I'll tell you that is um, her name's Linda Medulla. And I have not been able to um, make any kind of contact with uh, her family. Wow. So it, it, it sounds like, you're moving along and getting some uh, 
dots connected, but there's still a few missing things that you uh, are hoping to find or pieces that you're looking to put together. Yes, I am. Well, and hopefully if there's any listeners out there that are listening to this or they go back and listen to episode 35, maybe they can help you uh, with your uh, case, with your project. You know, this was a case that happened. Well, now it's been over 70 years. Uh, So I think this is probably the oldest case, one of the oldest cases I've ever worked on uh, and discussed. And this was uh, pretty clearly a hate crime. Uh, and in a time where, you know, you mentioned the, the words alleged lesbian as if it was some kind of, uh, um, as if they were some kind of serial killer or something. Right, um, right. They use that kind of terminology. Uh, but these were just people that were out minding their own business, living their own lives. And, and someone felt that they didn't uh, deserve to do that. And obviously, I think we talked about it, too, in, in, in the episode of the person that did this, the people that did this are, are no longer here, but the, the, the truth should still come out if it, if it can be somehow uh, developed after all this time. And I think you agree with that. Absolutely. I absolutely do. So where, um, just in case anyone else out there is listening and can, can somehow help you in your quest, um, what are the things that you'd still like to have help with or you could use some advice with that kind of stuff? Well, I would definitely, I know this is, you know, a long shot, but trying to make contact with um, Linda Medulla and her family. So I can say that I, Linda lived in Texas for a while. Um, she has a sister, um, Adeline, that is pretty up there in age, but I believe is still alive, living in Beaumont, Texas. But from what I can trace, um, Linda Medulla lived in Florida, and I can also see newspaper articles um, where <laughs> I think she was in her 60s, and unfortunately, she was um, accused um, or ca- caught up in a ring that was fixing bingo, um, a bingo game. Oh, that in sounds Florida. like an arch, an arch criminal right there. <laughs> um, so no judgment. I just want to know who Linda was <laughs> and, and what happened to her life, honestly. But it is the one thing I can um, I say that I did find um, about her. Um, and Oh, wow. What else? Uh, I, the other piece and, you know, COVID has really just, I think, delayed so much of, you know, I've, I've been able to research, but I really haven't been able to travel. I didn't go to New York. I, you know, uh, people that I wanted to connect with and wanted to film, we were doing things by Zoom, but I, I still now that the world is is sort of opening back up, um, you definitely want to go visit people in person, but the bar itself. So um, the I, I think the bar the bar was mobbed up, and um, I just want to find out who technically owned the bar because um, I've read a book that was written. Oh, I can't even remember what it was called, but um, it was it was written by the author actually lived on the block, and it was sort of his perspective of his childhood growing up. And they actually mention that location, and they talk about these, you know, they call them rummy faced men <laughs> that would stand outside this bar and take numbers. So um, Harry Plavnik, who is um, the one name of the, one of the men that was accused um, 
and, and brought before the grand jury for the crime and, and got off, um, he fits that bill. He had a background um, of of running numbers. So, and the book also mentions that uh, Lucky Luciano owned some of the some of the apartment buildings in the neighborhood. It was like a mix, like a working class mix of of people. Well, so going back and, and doing all this research, you're finding all these historic uh, um, aspects and, and well-known names and stuff connected to some of the stuff uh, as well. Right, right. Wow. It's it's just been so interesting. How long have you been working on the documentary now, <laughs> and do you have an idea of when it will come out? So, uh, you know... Total, I think we, it's, if you included these like past two years that we really haven't been able to do anything, I would say close to four because it's, you know, sort of taking the time to research and then going to the places and, 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 and filming. Um, I think we have an, you know, an order and an idea of what we would like to finish. Um, if, if things move swiftly, I would say within the next 12 to 15 months, we should be finished. Wow, that that's awesome. It just seems like something that's so interesting. You know, the case obviously being in a hate crime, being an old case, uh, is one side of it. But then just sort of you going back and and trying to find out this history, trying to find out more about you know your family, um, Miriam's the details of the little case, and and just having to rely on people sort of to help you along where were needed. It just seems like a, a fascinating uh, idea for a documentary. I think a lot of people would really watch that and be interested in it. So I, I hope uh, that it comes out and, and you're able to conclude, you know, produce it and conclude it uh, the yeah. way that you want. And hopefully the, the um, you can come to a conclusion at the end. There's some kind of uh, way that even if the person's not held accountable, you could maybe safely say at the end of the, the documentary that this is the person or persons responsible. And that would be uh, interesting if you could do that. It would. I think it would be like, I, I, I struggle with that. How am I going to tie it in a bow? I think I may have said that the first time because I'm never really going to get that, you know, that feeling that there, that justice was served. But at the end of the day, I think it's really just, I didn't want Miriam lost to time and lost to history. So, you know, if I'm able to put together this documentary and, and people see it or, or people connect with it, um, you know, then, then her memory is sort of, you know, it's out there and it's kept alive. Well, I I hope you uh, continue with it. I wish you the best of luck. And just where people are listening, if they want to contact you, if they think they can help or offer any kind of advice or information, where can they find you on social media and learn more uh, about the documentary? So we do have a small website, treaterkindly.com. Treaterkindly is the name of, of the documentary. Um, we also have a Facebook page, although it's kind of been, there hasn't been much to put on it, but you can get, reach me through there. And then I personally, I, I am on, um, Twitter and it's, um, at Decrevi, D-E-C-R-E-V-I 73. Um, uh, that's my Twitter handle. Well, hopefully people, if they do have information or can help you in some way that they'll reach out to you and, Please keep me up to date because I'd love to hear that you're moving along or you're uh, you're at the next stage of of what you're doing. It's, it's a very fascinating story. Thanks so much, and again, I just I really appreciate you know the opportunity to be on the podcast. 
Oh, my pleasure. And, and best of luck moving forward with it. I hope you enjoyed this episode full of updates. And hopefully the new year will bring many more. Perhaps even resolution to some cases. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for their support. Not just in 2021, but over the past few years as we made our way to episode 100. I'll be back on January 8, 2022 with an all-new episode. In the meantime, I'd like to say have a safe and happy holiday season. And at this time of the year more than ever, while you spend time with your family celebrating, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Evil can lurk in any shadow, and it sometimes walks in light, stalking and peering around corners. More often than not, evil is a person you know, a person that you'd never suspect of being involved intimately with a heinous crime. Sometimes it's the stranger you talk to at a tavern, or the mother of a beautiful baby. Sometimes nature itself can seem to be looking for blood. Worse Than Fiction is a true horror podcast that not only covers horrific crimes, but other truly terrifying situations in unfettered detail. You can find Worse Than Fiction on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else. I'll warn you, though, I don't spare any details. It's not for everyone.